This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for November 1st, 2018, the most important election of our lifetimes since the last election edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. In New York are Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And also with Emily at CBS Worldwide Headquarters is John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. Hello, John. Uh, hello, David and David. Yes, that <laughs> you've tipped off our <laughs> listeners to the fact that there are not one, but two Davids. You can never have enough. <laughs> uh, we had David French on the other week. So we're, we're making a habit of having Davids on. Uh-huh. And that David, the new David, is not David French. It's David Axelrod, who's the director of the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, host of the Axe Files on CNN. David, welcome back to the GabFest. Good to be here. Um, and we have you here because, of course, it is an incredibly big political week, and we wanted somebody who brought gravity and intelligence <laughs> and wit. And, and, it, and we found in, you. In lieu of that, <laughs> it was, you asked me. So I appreciate it. Uh, so on this week's show, because it's uh, because it's such a big week, we're really just going to focus on two topics. First, uh, two highly complicated and charged topics. First, the synagogue murders in Pittsburgh by an anti-Semite galvanized by alt-right rhetoric, the attempted assassinations of the president's political opponents by a deranged supporter of his, the president's own violent rhetoric and winking at violence. And we're gonna, so we're going to talk about have we, have we crossed into some terrifying new territory in American political life? And then, of course, we're going to talk about the midterms there. Tuesday, the very consequential election that we're facing. What does it look like to to experts like David and John? What might happen? And how should we as citizens deal with the the policy of distraction, of, of uh, vicious distraction that the president has been engaged in during these final weeks of the election? The army to the border, birthright citizenship removed, things like that. Um, and also, I want uh, Emily, Emily and John, I want your advice on how we should spend the last few days before the election, if we're not going to be out there on the campaign trail, which I'm certainly not going to be, how, how to stay sane. And plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. Before we get to the show, just a quick announcement. We have our conundrum show coming up on December 12th at the Skirbel Center at NYU in Manhattan. And that, of course, is our annual show, digging into the most difficult questions of our time. What is the best form of transportation? What is the worst form of transportation? Would you rather stop aging at 40 and live for 40 more years or stop aging at 70 and have to live for 70 more years? Things like that. And thank God we have a guest to help us. Every year, you know that we, we bring in uh, some distinguished thinker to join us. And this year, I'm glad to say we're going to have Simon Doonan, the judge on Making It, that sublime television show. He has been described accurately as the greatest dinner party guest on the planet. I cannot wait to have Simon join us. So you can get tickets to the conundrum show at slate.com slash live. And more importantly, you should please send us your conundrums. You can tweet them to us at at slate gabfest. Maybe use the hashtag conundrum to help us see that. Or you can email us at gabfest at slate.com or 
uh, put them on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash GabFest. We need your great conundrums. That's the heart of the show is the, the dilemmas you're facing, the problems you've always wanted to solve. So please uh, send us your conundrums and then get tickets at slate.com slash live for our December 12th show. There were three dire episodes of political violence in the last week. A white racist murdered two African-Americans in Kentucky after failing to gain entrance to a black church where he intended to presumably also try to murder African-Americans. Cesar Sayak, a Trump rally attending extreme supporter of the president, was arrested and charged with the attempted assassination of Democrats and presidential opponents, including the Clintons and the Obamas, with a string of mailed pipe bombs. And of course, Robert Bowers, an anti-Semitic monster who had been poisoned by anti-caravan rhetoric and various alt-right conspiracy theories, massacred 11 people at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. This, of course, comes in a context of the president's own casually violent rhetoric and general praise for thuggishness. So, Emily, I wanted to start with a question for you, which is that each of these these actors seem to have been what people call a lone wolf. They acted alone. How do we reconcile the idea that people are acting alone with the idea that there's a, there's a community or context of violence in the world that's created by that's created by a community that is causing this to happen? Like, are they alone or are they part of a group? I, the way I've been thinking about it is that when you go online, you can become part of this virtual community and that in that swirl of content are these hate-filled messages that can incite violence, even if that's not what they say they're doing, right? And this is where we get to this, you know, difficult problem of how much to pin this on the violent messengers, including the president. But whatever you think about the answer to that question, it's clear that people are tuning into this huge stream and they are hearing messages that um, that make them feel encouraged to attack particular people. And then when you look at the content, the actual words of the messages, you know, in this case, um, there was a, uh, content of the, the, in this case, the, um, shooter in Pittsburgh, one of the things he wrote about online was the Hebrew immigrant aid society, which is aiding refugees. And that was for him an inducement to take out a gun and kill people. And that, connects and you can decide how attenuated or not you think the connection is, but there is some link there to that and the anti-immigrant rhetoric um, about, you know, immigrants in general, about the caravan, and then about George Soros, who, you know, in my view, incredibly sadly, particularly since he's a Holocaust survivor, has become the kind of poster child for this breed of really virulent anti-Semitism. And we can talk about Soros. I mean, he obviously is someone who is spending a lot of money in the world trying to affect change. But I think that it's incredibly upsetting and revealing the way Soros is being used both in our country and internationally. And it's not the way that other big spenders like the Koch brothers or even Sheldon Adelson, who also happens to be Jewish, get portrayed. So this, I I was surprised to learn the Tree of Life killings was the worst act of anti-Semitic violence in American history. I, I mean, I was sort of surprised, and I think almost heartened to learn that. I would have thought there was something worse. But is, do you feel that the anti-Semitism manifested by, by Bowers reflects some deep well of anti-Semitism, or is it really the context of this generally heated, violent rhetoric and nationalism that we see on the right? Well, look, there are there are actually metrics on this. The last couple of years, uh, according to the ADL, incidents of, uh, of anti-Semitic acts, hate crimes, uh, are up uh, dramatically. I think they said 57 percent. Right. 
I don't want to be polite about this. I think when you have the biggest megaphone in the world and you promote uh, stories like this, uh, the notion that this group of uh, immigrants that are thousands of miles away are, you know, an invading army coming to maraud and rape and kill and so on. I mean, this is a canard that the president has invented uh, for his own purposes. But if you have people who are unstable out there, it's going to activate them. There's just no question about it. And when you look at Bauer's rhetoric and what it was that he said triggered him to go out and kill, uh, it was this story. And it was it's not just the president, but all of his amplifying forces out there uh, from Fox News to the to the uh, you know alt right websites that are promoting it, so you know I know that it's become a cliche now in the last few weeks, but the words do matter, and particularly when they come from the president, and he has not only activated people, but he has he has legitimated in their minds uh, uh, you know hateful hateful speech and the propagation of these kinds of uh, these kinds of stories that are only going to produce more hate and more problem. John, problems. John, as someone who thinks, as we've talked about before, more about this questions of, of civility in public life than almost anyone I know, how do you think about this connection between the hatefulness of what the president and some of his supporters are saying and the violence that now is erupting? I think of it, I guess, in two ways. There's the contributing uh, what, what percentage, how much did the president contribute? And then did he fulfill his duty in the aftermath? We can talk about that second question in a minute later, because I know this is obviously something David thought about in, in how to deploy a president, what a president says, when, and and and, mm-hmm. and that I, I, I'd like to talk about. Um, but, but first, the contributing factors. I think you have three elements here. One is that in general, the president as a candidate lowered the barriers for uh, a couple of different things. One was political violence. He encouraged, you know, people at his rallies to to hit those who weren't like them or who were there, people who were there protesting. He promised to pay the legal fees of somebody who did hit an African-American uh, protester in the, in the rally. When I asked him about it, I said, you know, you, you can just clock somebody. And he said, well, he was giving them the finger. So I think in general, in the question of uh, he has encouraged this kind of response. I think he also has trafficked in uh, conspiracy theories. He was the nation's leading birther for five years, making his really his start and his rise in Republican politics, claiming that the president was uh, not born in America. And he has, for in a variety of different ways, given um, power and energy to conspiracy theories more broadly, which is this, you know, creates an atmosphere in which uh, secret things are happening um, that, uh, you know, you don't know about, but that are very powerful and that are, that are awful and need to be, need to be stopped. Um, that's the kind of atmosphere that's been created. Then there's this specific narrative, which I think makes this different than the Pizzagate story. The Pizzagate story was a dark corner of the, of the, uh, web that created, that was powerful enough to send a man with an AR-15 to uh, a pizza uh, restaurant in Washington thinking there was a sex ring in the basement. The difference here is that the president spoke from the podium at rallies about this, and then it was on Fox News, and then there were a number of other Republicans who spoke about that specific specific narrative. Um, and then I think there's also the question of the, you know, the president's final ad in the campaign 
had images. The last three images were of Janet Yellen, uh, Lloyd Blankfein, and George Soros. And it talked about globalists on their mountain of money. I think anybody who has paid attention to the code words used in, in anti-Semitic attacks over the years w- recognized those at the time as uh, dog whistles. Um, so th- that's all a part of this conversation and, and the president's connection to it, which makes it very different than previous things we've had. I think as a final point, I would just... Um, you know, David was saying um, words uh, words matter. And there's another voice, you know, David has a long history in democratic politics. People might hear that and say, well, of course he's going to say that. But after the shootings in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, um, a, an official said, I know what rhetoric can do. I saw it happen. This was with respect to Donald Trump, who was running as a Republican candidate. It would be Nikki candidate. Haley, no? Uh, Emily is stealing my thunder. <laughs> and that's Nikki Haley. Okay, so that was when she was not the ambassador to the U.N., but she was arguing that rhetoric, that Donald Trump's rhetoric was connected to uh, the kind of rhetoric that led to the shooter in Charleston. So um, it's not just uh, in, you know, obviously the the circumstances have changed for Nikki Haley since then, but it's not just Democrats who are making this case now. There are Republicans, including Nikki Haley, who made this connection between President Trump's speech, then candidate Trump's speech and uh, violent behavior. But actually, let's go to, John, the question you were framing there for David, which is, so David, you worked for a president who was a person who who behaved with grace and and thoughtfulness yeah. and and his Quaint. And, and, Quaint. He, and his use of language yes. was particularly careful. Yes. Uh, Donald Trump is never going to be that president. So should we give up on the expectation of trying to control this and say let's let's not let's stop talking about whether Donald Trump can be made to act in a reasonable ways or whether we can tone down his rhetoric because it doesn't appear that any he is not he cannot be shamed into yeah. stopping this. He cannot be. There doesn't seem to be any pressure that you can apply to him that causes him to stop using this kind of rhetoric. And therefore, should we should we stop wasting our energy thinking about that? Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's important to understand what motivates Donald Trump. Uh, you know, he was raised by a father who told him there are two kinds of people in the world. There are killers and there are losers. And made very clear that which he thought Donald should be. And that's who Donald is. And it, it's interesting to hear how he justifies the things that he does when Leslie Stahl asked him, how do you justify, uh, you know, uh, ridiculing Dr. Ford the way you did? And he was sort of nonplussed by said, well, but it worked. We wouldn't have won without that. And that's his answer on all of these. The ends truly do justify the means with Donald Trump. The only thing that would change his behavior, and I, and I don't think it's it, even this would in the end of the day work because he has a formula and he's not going to stray from it is if it somehow became unprofitable for him to do this if it if it occurred to him that hey maybe i actually am losing uh, because of this. But as long as he feels like he's getting rewards from it and it's getting – he's just stepping on the gas as we go into the final days of the uh, election. We we just uh, – David, uh, you and I just looked at an, uh, a video that he released this morning that is a blatantly racist ad. It's, it's Willie Horton without the apologies. And he – and I expect that he is going to just intensify that until Tuesday. Now, if he has a bad result on Tuesday, will he – Will it cause some soul searching? I'm not sure he's capable of that. His soul is not a place that Donald Trump travels to. Right. So therefore, my question is, is it a waste of our time to look at it as, as an attempting to, to be indignant? Like, well, what are we supposed to do instead? Well, I, th- I think we are maybe we're supposed to, to, to think about the amplifying. Lower our own standards? Le- no, look at the amplifying forces. So focus on can can the amplifying forces, namely 
right-wing media, uh, the platforms that that serve as megaphones for for some of the most hateful speech, can they be controlled? Can they be shamed or or uh, or limited? And the way the gab, this this social network I'd never heard of, uh, no longer exists because of the shame that was that was applied to the people hosting that site. I just feel like I, I guess I feel like we've spent right. now we've spent most of the conversation talking about the president and his culpability. We all know the president is a fully culpable, you know, or he is he bears culpability in this, and it, and yeah. he he is responsible for magnifying this. And it's grotesque that we have to talk about our own president doing this. I just, as a practical matter, it doesn't feel to me like he is that he is a solvable problem, and therefore there are other yeah, other but you know, but avenues he, he may not at. be a solvable problem, but he is unavoidable problem because he has the biggest megaphone on the planet. I mean, uh, these web gab did not get the first 10 minutes on the CBS morning news. But when the president, you know, we always knew when, when, when Obama was president, our view was that his words were important and that he could send armies marching and markets tumbling and all kinds of negative consequences if he used the wrong words. This president doesn't have that restraint. And he has, and and the real question is, what do you do about that? I think it's important to. Ra- we do an awful lot of hand wringing, and I I think for good reason. But I think it's important to to label it for what it is. It is a tactic. It is an ugly tactic, but it is a tactic. And he actually wants the he wants the hand wringing. He benefits from politically from the battle he thinks with his base. And I think it's important to step back and say, we know what this is, and we're not going to uh, treat this as pronouncements uh, you know, from the president of the United States so much as tactics from a politician who thinks the politics of division profit him. It's less about who he is and who we, uh, more about who we want to be. And is everybody going to stand up and say, you know what, enough of that. We're not going to we're not going to dignify it. Well, I want to step back and remind. I went back and looked at this idea of president's role consoling the nation, um, and the moments when it had been effective, and you know, going all the way back to Lincoln. Um, it reminds what a what a president normally does, which is have this not only empathy that um, that is inside them, which they call on in these moments. For most presidents, it's a solemn duty, of course, but it's also an opportunity to do what presidents in the past have wanted to do, which is bring the nation together. What Reagan did with his challenger speech was obviously give this elegiac, poetic response to this tragedy, but he also then took the country, which was feeling at sea, and reconnected them with the adventurism at the center of that that endeavor. And so he made them at the end of the speech both... He honored the dead, but also kind of tied it to an American sense of adventure and spirit and lifted them up. That's what uh, Bill Clinton did. Bill Clinton did a slightly different thing in in Oklahoma City. The day before Oklahoma City, Clinton was having to explain why he was still relevant as a president. The next day, Oklahoma City happens. He gives a speech, and he not only unifies the nation, but also calls out the voices of extremism. He uses the moment to both take care of kids who were, uh, you know, freaking out about the fact that so many kids had died in the daycare center at Oklahoma City, also reminding the nation of its unity, but then saying... You know, a way we can make something of this tragedy is not to let the voices that led to it divide us. And then finally, President Obama goes and sings the hymn Amazing Grace at a after a, a white 
uh, supremacist kills African-Americans because they're black and gets the nation to unify around unity using a hymn from the Civil War. It's when presidents do it well, they they do this second thing, which is the transformative power of the presidency. And that's not even I mean. That seems like from another generation. But, that, but John, the, fa- the, the, the fact is that that is not how Donald Trump Absolutely. sees his role. It, it's not how he sees the yeah. presidency. He sees himself as the president of his base, and, the, and he thinks that division works for him. Those presidents summoned us together as one American community, one American family. If he thinks of America as a family, it's the Borgias, <laughs> you know. He does not think that we—he uh, doesn't want— uh, uh, us to, uh, to to find ourselves in each other. That's not his political project. And his political project is the only thing uh, that he is pursuing. I can't let this discussion end, though. I'm going to, since I'm, uh, I've, I've got the mic, I'm going <laughs> to, I, I, and you guys may have your own uh, experiences on this. My uh, father was an immigrant from Eastern Europe. He uh, fled with his family, the pogroms after his home was blown up. And he came here thinking that this was a place where those kinds of things wouldn't happen. He's long gone. But I wonder, you know, I I just, I was thinking about what my uh, family would think about this. The second personal note I want to make is the, the most impossibly sad story that I heard was the slaying of these two uh, special needs men with intellectual disabilities. I have an adult child with intellectual disabilities, the sweetest and uh, most innocent and caring person I know, and so were these guys, and they were killed. And I heard one story that the one brother, people were trying to shield him, and he knew his other brother had been shot, and he wanted to be with him, and he got killed. I can't tell that story without my without tearing up. And the fact that um, this doesn't cause us to step back or doesn't cause some to step back or the president to step back and say, you know what, maybe this has gone too far uh, is, is, is really sad. It is. I, it's incredible. Yeah, I, that- there are so many things about this week that have been hard for, I think, a lot of people. As when we think about this lack of unifying, I mean, one of the hardest things for me as someone who's Jewish was watching Mike Pence have this ceremony with a rabbi who's not a rabbi, who is, you know, in an evangelical Christian group who believes in Jesus, presented as, you know, someone who represents Jews, turned out, I think, to have been actually defrocked in that group, whatever that means. But there is just something so... um, (laughs) divisive. It, it made me feel entirely excluded from whatever American family we're talking about, I, that the people in charge of the government don't even care enough to like figure out what those distinctions mean among Jews or that was the only person they could find. I don't know what explains it, but it felt so incredibly disrespectful at this moment where, you know, you're hearing these Hebrew songs on television, online, if you're listening to, you know, any of what's happening in Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh, and instead of picking up those tropes and making them feel like they could in some way be a national symbol or have meaning more broadly, like were again portrayed as this like weird foreign group. And like, you know, 
I don't want to exaggerate the importance of anti-Semitism in American life because there in, some, in so many ways Jews have prospered here and I am part of that and lucky to be part of that. And yet, you know, Lydia Polgreen at the Huffington Post tweeted at some point this week that anti-Semitism is like the source code in the world for bigotry and prejudice. And I think that remains true in a way that is both easily explained and at the same time, like to me, inexplicable. Um, and to have the to have the sort of national leadership not be able to recognize and reach out at that moment, like that, I found that hurtful. Even though I have no expectations, I still found it hurtful. I actually have a slightly different take on that, Emily. The Pence piece seemed like just stupidity and just terrible staff work and dumbassery. The one that I was more disturbed by in that vein was the fact that the person who greeted the president in Pittsburgh was the ambassador from Israel. Yes, that was also we, dismaying. American Jews are not – we're not subjects of Israel. We're not We're not people who are fundamentally Israelis who just happen to be living in the United States. We're Americans. And a lot of us and reject the, the Netanyahu Israel, government and its policies. Yeah. The idea that we are we – are, I think that there, there's this idea among some, particularly on the right, that basically all American Jews are exiles from Israel or they're fundamentally rightly and properly belong to Israel. But no, we're, we are – Jews are a diaspora people. We've always been a diaspora people. And – and we are – certainly I do not think of myself as an Israeli in any sense, even though I'm married to an Israeli. That conflation that, that I am somehow – that the person who should speak for me is the ambassador from Israel is, is infuriating to me. One thing we know is that whenever the politics of the other is played, that sense of stirring up fear about the other, that ultimately it is going to be, as my grandfather would say, bad for the Jews. And uh, we saw that this week. There's a, there was a very good episode of The Daily where Jonathan Weissman, Emily, your colleague, yes, he did such uh, who an has a book about anti-Semitism. Yeah, I mean, he talked about that just this point, David, the point that both of you just made, that, that anti-Semitism is the, is the canary in the coal mine for all forms of, of hatred. It's the beginning of, of, of excluding others, of, of identifying dark, sinister other forces that are, that are ruining the purity of whatever nation people belong to. But the, na- but the, but the bottom line here is that um, – you, you ask what should we, we should do about it. Um, in a democracy, there's only one thing to do about it, which is people need to say, we're not, this is not who we want to be. This is not the direction we want to go. And, uh, you know, we'll see. We, we don't know how people are going to, what verdict people are going to render on this. He's making a bet that, you know, he can whip up his uh, troops uh, and his base to the point where he's triumphant. And the question is whether he's going to pay any price for this. Building on David's point that, you know, I talked about what the traditional role is. This president doesn't see that role as being a part of his job at all. But unlike previous presidents, we have a direct line into his subconscious or maybe or his id or whatever, which is the tweets. And if you look at what the tweets have been uh, consumed with is the idea that the bombings got in the way of Republican electoral chances, that the pro that there weren't really protesters in Pittsburgh, um, mm-hmm. that that CNN uh, and the media has whipped up that that's where, you know, if we look in these previous moments with presidents, what's in their heart, they call on to minister to a nation. The tweets are the best vision we have into the, the the personal preoccupation of the president in this administration, that's another way in which measuring the current occupant against everything that has come before gives us a sense of how much we've departed from the traditions of, a you know, of the previous 44 presidents. Yeah. God, I mean, everyone's id is a dark place, but Donald Trump's id 
must be the darkest place on earth. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments with the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. Today, we're going to talk about our own most vivid election night memories. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to join today. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The midterm elections are Tuesday. It is now Thursday morning, so there are, I don't know, 100-odd hours before voting starts. This election has felt like it's been building up for you know, really for two years, practically, since the moment Donald Trump was elected, it feels like uh, Democrats have been waiting for this moment. Uh, David, how do you feel? (laughs) Well, look, I've been spending a lot of time talking to friends on both sides, and everybody seems to agree on a few things. One is highly likely that Democrats will take the House, probably not by that many uh, seats. If, If you Nobody's sure of anything, by the way. A lot of races, more races hanging kind of 45-45 than I've ever seen going into an election like this. But I think the general sense is that Democrats will win the House and that Republicans will win the Senate. And they may expand their majority there. And it could be anywhere from, uh, uh, from, from one to three additional Seats. I think the other storyline is going to be governorships, though, and I think Democrats are going to win a bunch of governorships, and they're going to do very well in that in the very places where Donald Trump took the presidency in states like Michigan, uh, perhaps uh, Ohio and Wisconsin, um, maybe Florida, and in all those states, I think Democratic senators are going to be uh, reelected. So I expect a a mixed result with. Um, the president uh, claiming victory, whatever happens. (laughs) So, Emily, there's been this sensation of kind of like dirty tricks. And so there's a group of dirty tricks. So there's an attempt to smear Robert Mueller just moments before the election as a sexual harasser, which was exposed as as being uh, pure tricksterism, pure, pure, pure criminal activity on the people trying to smear him. And then you have it's the like pres- Ed Whalen, but times three, right? Exactly. Um, Ed Whalen plus someone's mom's voicemail. Uh, <laughs> uh, but then also you have the president who, who I think all presidents, you know, attempt to to gain advantage for their party during uh, during a midterm campaign and during a presidential election campaign. And so it's no surprise that President Trump is trying to do that. But he's the the mechanisms with the 
caravan, the sending troops to the border, the birthright citizenship nonsense uh, seem particularly um, blatant this time around, don't they? Yeah. And also we, the media, keep falling for them over and over again. And I don't know what to do about that. I feel like I keep reading these smart analyses of the problem, but we keep covering it because it's sensational and incendiary. And it's like sticking to us like these bits of, I don't know, detritus or tar or something. And we keep falling into the trap. And, you know, even as I'm reading these like helpful smart op-ed pieces explaining why birthright citizenship is a constitutional right by people like George Conway, a lawyer married to Kellyanne Conway, one of Trump's closest advisors. I feel like the whole thing is like an exercise in futility because we're giving attention to the topic that the president wants us to be talking about in the week before the election instead of pre-existing conditions for, you know, of sick people and what the Republican plan would really do to expose people to a lot of risk who have health problems. It's so hard to figure out how to break this pattern, um, you know, on television, online, here on the GabFest. Uh, and it's that problem is like distracting me from paying attention, attention to the elections, which I don't know. I also feel like the last few days before the election is always so confusing. It's just really hard to know exactly what's going on. But isn't that the genius of, uh, I mean, it's a diabolical genius of Donald Trump. He understands yes. the modern media environment better than anybody. You know, he yes. came out of it. I mean, he thinks of life in terms of ratings. There's no doubt that he wanted that question and he wanted it right now. And he's probably been thinking about that for some time. What grenades can I launch in the last week to really torque this thing up? So that is his genius. The question is whether you cover it as a tactic or you cover it as a serious issue. I think it should be covered as a tactic. I think it should be made clear, just just like his phantom tax cut that he said was coming before the election, even though Congress was out of out of session uh you know so uh i'm agreeing with you but also arguing that it's a matter of volume right that like yes it's a tactic and also it shouldn't crowd out other substantive issues the way it is doing so yeah so we covered it as as a tactic i think also you have a a situation where you have the everything david says i i think he's right it could have been embedded in stories which were also running that day about 5,000 troops being sent to the border. Now, that you can't ignore. Human, be- you know, actually, the military is being mobilized to the move to the border. That's a piece of, that's a piece of news. Even, or so we're you know, told. embedding. Well, but I mean, when the Secretary of Defense says that, you know, talks about well, what they're 15, doing. Well, now it's 15,000, John, and, and the question is, where will it be next Wednesday? Sure, you know, and sure. It may go but the I'm way saying you can't ignore. Tax cut. And it's another but tactic. You, but you, but uh, stipulating that it's a tactic you uh i'm trying to draw a distinction between the president winging off something in conversation and something that he's got uh the defense department at least at some level mobilizing to do um and as a way of uh, packaging it so that people can understand the distinctions here but i think the question i have for you david is um in conversations i've been having uh recently with republicans some have marveled um at the discipline from democrats 
at, at continuing to talk about pre-existing conditions all through the last several months, yes. um, not taking the bait on some of these issues, not getting into a war that takes place on turf that the president wants it to take place on. Have you been um, well, what's your take on the, the, the apparent discipline among Democrats on the health care issue? No, I think that that is absolutely true. You know, just I, I just watched the the cascade of ads, you know, sitting in Chicago and watching the races. We've got some hot congressional races out there, and the Democratic ads are uh, almost all focused uh, on that. And I think it's been it's been smart. You know, you hear a lot of people there. D- Democrats love to wring their hands and talk about how Democratic Party has no message and so on. And the truth is there's rarely a national message when you don't have the White House. But there is this insight that this issue has touched a chord in people. And the proof of it isn't just that Democrats have been disciplined, but that now Republicans all over the country are forced to run ads saying, oh, no, we want to protect people with pre-existing conditions. And it tells you how powerful that issue is. Given given what you just said about that, you see on the right this issue of immigration, which to me is a mostly a mirage issue. Mm-hmm. Um, immigration is not a crisis in my mind. Yeah. But but clearly Republicans— Or in fact. Yes. Uh, Republicans are galvanized about it. Should Democrats have found a way to engage on that issue? It feels like they've totally ceded the territory to I've had You know, I've had Democratic strategists uh, talk to me about that. And propose that there should be a like sane alternative to what to do about the caravan uh, and so on. I, I think that uh, there is some merit to that. There's also uh, merit to keep on doing what appears to be working for you. I think where the caravan thing is going to work for Trump is in places where uh, he might have gotten uh, Republicans to flow his way on the Natch, and that is in these red states. He may profit in these Senate races. I will say this. Every single person I've spoken to, Republican and Democrat, who were involved in these races, said something changed after the events of last week, that whatever momentum the Republicans had was halted. And the president has lamented about that, uh, you know, more than he has about uh, particularly the the bomber. Uh, He said this bomb thing as if it was another, you know, plot in a reality show. But it has... One uh, Republican, a top Republican, said to me, we're sort of back to where we were before the Kavanaugh hearings, except in those red states where this, I think this immigration issue has galvanized the president's base. John, does the Senate seem generationally doomed for Democrats to you? Is the institution completely lost or is it just, you know, the circumstances, they just happen to be defending a lot of seats and in years to come, it'll they'll recover. But but there is this issue of the, you know, the, the, the small states, the, the population distribution makes makes the Senate mm-hmm. a much harder get. And do you, do you feel like that, that Democrats are completely hosed on it? I don't think I don't think so. I mean, uh, just because I have that general feeling, which I've, you know, I've expressed before, but just when you say that parties or institutions, well, institutions are slightly different from parties, but I always felt like, and then we've seen this a few times when people say, oh, the Democratic Party is dead, you know, and then suddenly after John Kerry lost, Democratic Party got nothing. They got, and Barack Obama comes along. Then it's, you know, the Republican Party is over and then they retake the House. So I think um, this is a bad, this is a bad map for uh, Democrats. I think worse than 100 extra- years. Yeah. Um, I think one of the extraordinary things is you have not extraordinary things, but one thing to keep in mind is incumbents have a there's, you know, usually get reelected. This is a Democratic year. 
presidents uh, usually, I think the number is, they usually lose Senate seats about 70% of the time in midterm elections, they lose Senate seats. So all the momentum is going in the Democrats' direction. And yet, as David said, the Republicans might even pick up seats, which tells you something about how things have changed in the diehard partisanship that was not always a part uh, or not what wasn't always a part of american elections in the last many cycles i was going back and looking um at 86 and 82 and there are these great long articles about dealignment and the idea that basically politics wasn't partisan anymore there was this free-floating electorate that kind of pick and choose um candidates Ooh, regardless of their parties so um but i i guess i feel like um i don't know the answer to your question david but i feel like You'll, you know, the next uh, election, uh, 2020, is a good, is a better map for Republicans, yeah. uh, better map for Democrats. So, um, and also remember how people were saying, oh, the, you know, the Midwest is, is da- danger territory for Democrats. As David pointed out, all the Senate races in the Midwest are pretty much looking fine for, uh, I mean, for Democrats in places like, uh, you know, Ohio, Pennsylvania. Michigan, Wisconsin, and Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Indiana's a special case. Missouri's a special case. But, um Anyway, I guess the point is, is just a lot of things that people think are the case actually change pretty quickly. I think one of the reasons McConnell feel, Mitch McConnell feels a uh, sense of urgency about trying to get as many seats as possible now is that he looks forward to 2020 and the map isn't very good for Republicans and uh, he wants to bankroll as many uh, seats as he can here. So I think the fact that Democrats uh, – these states tend to go tribal and follow their presidential – uh, picks in Senate races. The fact that, uh, uh, you know, six, seven Democrats might survive, um, you know, I'd feel pretty good about that if I were, you know, I don't, I don't think they necessarily will. But I think that's probably a pretty good batting average given the proclivities of this of the country right now. Emily, what's your sense about whether the ballot access fights are going to energize or, or depress voting, especially among Democrats? Um, I mean, you can't you can't overstate the significance of kicking people off the registration rolls, because when you do that, then they like just literally can't vote. And, you know, there are states like Georgia where the hundreds of thousands of people have been um, had their registrations rejected or been taken off the rolls. Um, Ohio is another state state with tens of thousands of people. So that has a real impact. I do think that, you know, telling people that the franchise is threatened in some way can make it seem more valuable to them. But everything we know about messaging and voting suggests that you have to say like, hey, here's this good candidate who is interested in this that connects to you. Voting is something that everybody does that you want to be a part of, not like the sort of hectoring or scolding people into making them feel like they have to perform this duty. So that makes me think that the fears about losing your vote are not going to be super powerful for people who aren't already engaged. And I'm just constantly struck going about life by how many people are not engaged. I think one of the reasons, John, that you're right, that maps change and party alignments change is that people are persuadable in part because they're not paying very much attention you know, maybe at a different point in the nation's history, or maybe we'll see more turnout now. But the number of people who just don't really know a whole lot about this, don't really care, like, remains huge. I mean, I that I run into those people lots and lots in Connecticut. But, but I mean, on the uh, on the positive side, I think because I want to give this has been kind of a beat down on Donald Trump. I want to give him credit. I think he's actually responsible for what is likely to be the biggest turnout 
in a midterm since the mid-60s. First time that in my lifetime that Democrats were actually outspending Republicans in, in most of these districts because of small don- okay. donations that have come through. That I, I expect that there's going to be a very, very big vote next Tuesday. Did you guys see this amazing New York Magazine feature where they interviewed 12, 12 young people who are yeah. not going to vote? Oh, my God. I had God. to stop because I was, it was so It was irritated. so frustrating. So there, it's, it, <laughs> because it's this mix. It's actually interesting. So I, my feeling yeah. was I began by hating these young people and just feeling like what a bunch of idiots. There's a, there's a person who lives in Texas who feels like – who lives in a – who's a Democrat who lives in a red congressional district in Austin – but it's a red district in Austin, which is, I'm sure, like a district where there's the Democrats have a chance if it's, if mm-hmm. it's around Austin. Mm-hmm. And saying, like, oh, my vote doesn't matter because I'm in Texas. It doesn't matter. It's like, you idiot. How could you think that? And then there's the, the yeah. person who Especially lives in Especially because Beto has yeah. kind of whipped up a lot of enthusiasm yeah. about young people. I hope it's not just to go to, to rallies and get cool T-shirts. I don't know. And then there was another person who had voted for Hillary Clinton who lived in Ohio and was like, oh, well, she didn't win. Now I'm disillusioned. And so I began by – and I was like, you – fucking moron. So I began by hating them. <laughs> but then as you kind of read deeper, there were a bunch of them who had a hard time registering or they moved around a lot. And so their voter registration, like just dealing with the voter registration was a pain or they weren't sure where they were supposed to go. And you did get yeah. the sense like, oh, there's a mix of there's a mix of a feeling that my vote doesn't matter and and a mix of stupidity. And then also this mix of actually people p- participating in politics. We made it hard because we basically there's certain people who don't want people to vote, and that 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 it made me less angry at these young people so turn, than at the, than at the system. Turnout that, of you know, of millennials in the last midterm was 16 percent. If they get to 25 percent or or 25 to 30, that would be uh, a huge difference. I uh, I run this Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, and we have run a huge registration drive on campus that's been very very successful. Uh, we have an early voting station on campus, and I'm very eager to see how many of these young people take advantage of the fact that, and we have automatic registration now in Illinois, too. I, I will report back to you. But um, uh, there also is an element of, among some, of, of a sense of futility about politics generally. And, and it's not that they're not engaged. They just think there are other ways yeah. You know, uh, uh, you know, social media and uh, other kinds of devices, apps, and so on, to attack the problems that they think politics and government isn't attacking, aren't attacking. David Axelrod, when people ask you why they should vote, what do you tell them? Well, uh, you know, I, I don't have to work very hard to say we've had an, uh, examples in the last ten years of how politics matter, and I can point to things that were done over the. Uh, Obama administration that have ha- had a palpable impact on people's lives. Um, Affordable Care Act pulling people out of pulling the country out of a uh, potentially catastrophic economic disaster uh, and so on. Uh, and then we've seen the impact that this president has had. You know, it is a complete anybody who says elections don't matter at this point simply isn't paying attention. And uh, you know, this is the fundamental way in which we grab the wheel of history and turn it in the direction we think is right. David Axrod, we were so glad to have you with us on the show today. We'll talk to you again soon. Great to be with you guys. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at chabacasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So let's go to cocktail chatter. It's the last weekend before the election. Some people will be drinking to forget, drinking to distract. Others of us will just be drinking to socialize and have a good time with loved ones and friends. So, Emily Bazelon, when you were drinking to have a good time with loved ones and friends, what will you be chattering to them about? All right. I truly will be chattering with this, although I feel bad because I'm taking us back into the muck of anti-Semitism and campaigns. But so in my home state of Connecticut, there is a state Senate race going on near and around the town of Middleton. No, near and around Middletown, Connecticut. And a mailer went out this week from the Republican candidate, Ed Charamot, in which he portrayed his opponent, who happens to be Jewish, in this, like, leering, ugly, clutching dollar bills manner, um, which just seemed shocking to me, at least in the state of Connecticut. Um, the candidate, Ed Charamot, has refused to back off the mailer. Um, his opponent, Matt Lesser, expressed you know, dismay about it. And what interested me the most was that the initial reaction of the chair of the Republican Party in Connecticut was to first be totally defensive of this mailer and to say he couldn't see anything wrong with it. Um, this is state Republican chairman J.R. Romano. So he says to the Hartford Current, when I look at that, I don't see Jewish. <laughs> and then informed that the Anti-Defamation League was um, upset about this ad, um, Romano said, well, have you asked them about their political affiliation? As if there was no sort of way to have a nonpartisan view um, of a political stunt like this. The next day, when he was talking to other news outlets, including CBS and NPR, Romano kind of backed down and said, well, I've talked to my Jewish Republican friends and I wouldn't have sent that mailer out and I didn't approve it. But he didn't apologize or in any way acknowledge his previous statements. And I was just struck here by two things. I mean, one is the way in which the attacks on George Soros that are coming from Trump and people around him have just made anti-Semitism more acceptable, um, I guess. And then the other is just the instant defensiveness of so many people in politics right now that there's just this complete unwillingness to do any kind of soul searching and considering what it feels like to be the receiving end on this. Like maybe you didn't think of it initially as having this kind of anti-Semitic connotation, but gee, you can imagine what it would feel like to be Jewish and look at that ad. Anyway, it's just my home state variety of a lot of the horrible, um, the horrible images that are being served up for this election. I cannot wait until it is over on Tuesday. I would note, Emily, that was a gross episode. There's a Similar kind of nastiness happening to uh, Andrew Gillum in Florida, where there's just yes. the most incredibly racist stuff 
that's being spread to deride him or depress black vote or galvanize racists. So it's yep, it's, it's not, totally gross, full of dirty tricks. Not just in Connecticut, I mean, right? John Dickerson, what is your chatter? My chatter is one about about which I'm ambivalent because I um, so this week, uh, Whitey Bulger, um, the infamous um, mob boss, was killed in a federal prison in West Virginia. So Whitey uh, Bulger was just the most awful person ever. But there was a there is a, an amazing obituary in the Boston Globe by Kevin Cullen and, and Shelley Murphy, which has just all of the details of his awful life. Um, and, and what, what it's not, it's just well, it's very well written, very well laid out. Um, and it shows all of his awfulness, but also shows these other parts of his character. Like he was at home. He was a stickler with his kids for keeping their room clean, uh, you know, uh, being sort of model citizens, um, and then on the other hand, he, you know, would take naps after he killed people. He was able to sleep, not just at night, but basically right afterwards. I like the idea that the tell for a mafia boss is that you want your kids' rooms to be clean. Yeah. Obviously, the fact that my kid's room is a total mess is now a point in my favor. He was also, um, he also participated in an LSD experiment when he was in jail uh, as a part of the 60s experiment in mind control. But then finally, the reason he was caught is that... Um, a woman who'd been living next to him when he was on the run saw a CNN report and recognized his face. He was on the, basically, he went on the run and for about 16 years was outside of crime and was hiding. And the reason she was able to identify him is because he and his wife had taken care of a stray cat and that this woman remembered how kind they were to the stray cat and that's what uh, stuck in her head and allowed her to identify him so that he could finally go to prison. Anyway, it's great. It's a great obituary um, for just its... It's an amazing story. I have two chatters that are designed to hearten, to fill the heart with joy and goodness and delight uh, because I feel like it's been a really terrible couple of weeks. I find the pre-election period both anxiety-producing and and anger-producing, and I, I'm trying to diminish that and trying to spread as much joy and cause as much calm and and warmth around me as I possibly can and wish for that for all. So just two quick things. One is for no good reason, I think just because I wanted something heartening and joyful, I started to rewatch the TV show Friday Night Lights, which I hadn't watched in eight or nine years when I first, you know, tore through it uh, when it was actually on. And it just holds up so well. It is big hearted and intense and joyful and it is also a portrait of a kind of an America that we all want to live in. I mean, one that's real-ish, but decent and glorious and heartfelt and where people are, people are uh, looking out for each other. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful show. And I, if you have never seen it, you should go see it. If you've seen it, you might want to go revisit it. It, it definitely holds up. The second thing is I was, um, I was cottoned on to a wonderful little newsletter this week. Uh, it's put out by a woman named Brett Warshaw, and it's called What's the Difference? And w what she does is she just takes things that are commonly confused, that people are not sure they you know, know what the distinction is about them, and simply explains what they are. Some of them are super obvious, like what's the difference between egg rolls, spring rolls, and summer rolls? 
And sometimes it's more subtle. What's the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath? Uh, this week's edition is particularly magnificent. It's what's the difference between button mushrooms, cremini mushrooms, and portobello mushrooms? What, do you guys know what the difference between button mushrooms, cremini mushrooms, and portobello mushrooms is? Just that they look a little different. The cremini ones are like browner. And I feel like they cook They're the up same mushroom. Tastier. They're the oh, same. Damn. Damn. They're just like one's a baby, one's an oh. adolescent, and one's a fully grown adult. Someone like, was just telling me this about that? peppers, that it's true about red, yellow, and green peppers as well. Oh, yeah. I think they're just different stages of ripeness. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, no doubt that's a future edition of What's the Difference. Anyway, go to tinyletter.com slash what's the difference. It's just a once a week delightful little uh, email. Also, we, of course, are collecting listener chatters. You guys are tweeting them to us at at SlateGabFest, uh, emailing them to us at GabFest at Slate.com. And we had a bunch of, again, as always, really interesting ones this week to choose from. Uh, one that really struck me was from Alex Medina, who's at, at Medina, Kansas, or maybe Medina, Kansas. I'm not sure. And Alex links us to a New York Magazine story, 27 school shooting survivors bear their scars and bear witness. And it's a photograph of... 27 people who survived school shootings from 1946 all the way to the present day. Uh, some of them school shootings you've heard about and some of them you certainly haven't heard about and people with brief interviews about what happened to them, what their injuries were. It's very moving and interesting and uh, I strongly recommend it. That's our show for today. The Political Gab Fest researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank, whose birthday it is today. Happy birthday, Joss. Happy, Happy birthday. birthday. You should follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. You should tweet chatter at us. And also you should tweet your conundrums at us because we're doing our conundrum show soon. So please tweet your conundrums to us at SlateGabFest or put them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash GabFest, or email them to us at GabFest at Slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. Ever listen to podcasts with your kids? It's a great way to keep them entertained and engage their minds without relying on screens. I want to tell you about a new kids history podcast hosted by me, Joy Dolo. It's called Forever Ago. And I teamed up with the producers of the award-winning kids podcast, Brains On, to make it. Forever Ago dives into the amazing backstories of everyday stuff, like emojis, video games, and skateboards. We use games, skits, and kid co-hosts to keep the whole family engaged, while teaching listeners to think critically about history. Along the way, we'll hear some incredible stories, like how a curious teenager revolutionized skateboarding. Gnarly. How alarm clocks used to just be people. Rise and shine. And how the poop emoji almost didn't happen. The first episode of Forever Ago drops November 8th, but you can listen to a preview and subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you choose to listen. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.